Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St. Oswald's Haberfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. It's hard to imagine that John Bradford was the kind of person who did anything half-heartedly. Born in the early 16th century, he was burnt at the stake at age 45 for his part in the Reformation in England. He'd experienced something of a conversion, not just to Protestantism, but to the grace of God and to the extent of his own sin. He earned the nickname Holy Bradford because of how devoted he was to growing in Christ's likeness. A few years after his death, one of his contemporaries wrote about his spiritual practices and he described his practice of... Bradford had daily exercises and practices of repentance. His manner was to make himself a catalogue of all his grossest and most enormous sins, which in his life of ignorance he'd committed, and to lay them before his eyes when he prayed so that by the sight and remembrance of them he might be stirred to offer up to God the sacrifice of a contrite heart and to seek assurance of salvation in Christ by faith. He said, Bradford carried a journal around with him in his pocket and the reason he carried it was so that he could note down in it such evil thoughts as did rise in him, as of envying the good of others Thoughts of unthankfulness, of not considering God and His works, of harshness and unsensibleness of heart. And so he made to himself and of himself a book of daily practices of repentance. Our language is a little bit old and a little bit dense, but he was a man who thought a lot about sin. Now, no doubt he would have described himself, to use the words of some old prayers, as a miserable sinner, somebody who was without a hope in the world apart from the kindness of God. Now, the story goes, and you may have heard something of this before, that when Bradford witnessed criminals being led out to execution, he would say to himself, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. Now, compared to John Bradford, my guess is that we give much less attention to the presence and power of sin in our lives. His dedication might even seem slightly neurotic, the product of a culture that was overly fearful of the judgment of God. But then again, maybe there's something we've lost in our culture where, to quote one author, everything is permitted and nothing is forgiven. That's the culture that we live in. Our secular culture has traded the idea of judgment and sin in favour of a you-do-you moral individualism. We try to convince ourselves that there's only personal appetites and preferences. But we find it very difficult to shake the idea of good and evil, and in one sense we don't want to because we want justice. And the brutal invasion of Ukraine by an aggressive despot reminds us thoroughly of that. 
inside the church, amongst Christians, we're also, I think, a little bit less likely to give sustained attention to our sin. It's hardly inspiring or uplifting to talk about it. And it can seem legalistic and exacting. We're grace people. Graced people. And there's truth in that. There's something right about that. But it's worth wondering whether one of the consequences of this is that we're all too quick to excuse sin with a nobody's perfect or a we all make mistakes and to fail to see how devastating sin really is. Today, our topic is sin. Not the easiest topic to talk about. Probably not the one you'd pick for a baptism. It's not like Jesus and the little children or something like that. And yet there's something fitting about it, of course, because what we said of Anders and what we prayed was that he might be delivered from sin, that he too needs this new birth and new life. It's the second of a four-week teaching series that we're in where we're looking at the life-giving art of repentance. Last Sunday, here at church, we laid the foundation and we said that for fruitful repentance to happen, that you need to get the grace of God in Jesus, in His person and in His death. If you want change in your life, if you want to grow, you need to go deeper. You need more of Jesus, not just more strategies or techniques. But grace, if it's properly understood, brings us back to the question of sin. Because God's grace is to the unlovely. It's to sinners like me and you. And so as we keep exploring this topic of repentance, then we need to spend some time thinking and talking about what it is that we repent from, sin. Uh, We're going to move through what we're looking at this morning in three steps. Step one, we're going to look at the nature of sin. Step two, the misery of sin. And then step three, responding to sin. And so, number one, the nature of sin. When we say the word sin, what is it that we're actually talking about? Most people, I think, at least most people more broadly in our culture, presume that Uh, At its best, or at its most kind of religious definition, sin is wrong actions. Maybe actions that offend God, and that's partly right. Sin manifests itself in behaviours that celebrate others' misfortunes, that crave what's forbidden, that hoard rather than give, or that cause us to willingly hurt other people. But to get to the nub of the issue, to get to the heart of it, we've got to go deeper. See, sin's not just the actions we do, but what lies beneath. In Genesis chapter 4, that chapter we read from, it's not just Cain's murder of Abel that's the problem. It's the anger in his heart that drove him to the murder. Anger at being bested by his brother's offering. Jealousy that meant that he couldn't celebrate Abel's offering because it was not his own. Sin has to do with the heart, with what we desire, with what we love. Or as we said during the baptism, what Christians are called to reject is the sinful desires of the flesh. Not all desires. Christians aren't anti-desire. We think desire is a good thing, but 
that desire run amok becomes sinful. And if God's love, if God is love, which is what the Bible says and what we believe as followers of Jesus, then love is not just something that God does, it's something that's fundamental to His character. He relates to His creation in love because that's who He is. That's what He's like. Through love, He made it. Through love, He sustains it. Through love, He redeems it. What that means is that the world has a moral bias towards love. It's bent in the direction of love. You can pretend it's not the case, but it doesn't change the reality. Something of this is captured in uh, God's response to Cain's killing of Abel. He says, what have you done to Cain? And then he says, listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Sin offends God and it cries out from the ground because it violates the logic of love. It violates God's character, the character that He's inscribed into all of creation. Love of God, first and foremost, which is what we're called to, and love of people who are made in God's image, second. Which is why it's no surprise that when Jesus is asked the question, what's the, two great, what's the greatest commandment? In the Gospels, he responds by saying that the whole Old Testament, the entire law and the prophets, hang off just two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And to love your neighbor as yourself. See, what sin is at a fundamental level is to tend away from love. It's to run your life in a different direction, against the grain of the universe, by not loving the way that you were designed to. It's to love some things too much, like our own glory, or reputation, or comfort, or power. And to love some things not nearly enough, like God's glory, and His reputation, and the well-being and goodness of others. One of the ways that this disordered love is talked about in the Bible is through the language of idolatry, of worshipping things other than God, of serving them as if they were the things that we couldn't live without, which is the language that Paul uses in that passage we had in Romans, verse 25, where he says that people exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. And what we need to see is that sin is both vast and deep. It's not just actions that can be sinful, but desires as well. And what this means is that evil is the ocean, not the islands of our experience. We're not mostly good people taking occasional missteps in the wrong direction, No, sin means we're running in the wrong direction. And it also means that it's possible to do good actions, but to still sin. Because your desires can be sinful even as you do good. You clean up your housemate's mess so that they come home and find everything beautifully ordered. 
but in your heart you feel superior and self-righteous and the passive-aggressive comments show that you never really did it for them in the first place. Or you go the extra mile at work, staying back late or coming in early, making sure you pick up on other teammates' slack. But what really motivates you is an insatiable desire to be well-liked by your colleagues and bosses. If they ever say something critical about you or your performance, it feels like a crushing blow because deep down what you live for is your reputation. And while the effort might be admirable, the motivations reveal that you're, in the end, sacrificing at the temple of self. See, sin's not just a matter of the things we do, our actions, but of our hearts, what we love. It's why the writer of Ecclesiastes says that the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. Madness is in our hearts while they live. And the reason you've got to be clear on this is because it's when you get clarity that you can prescribe the right cure. You take a Panadol if you've got a headache and go to sleep and hope that you wake and it's all gone. But if you've got a brain tumour, you undergo chemotherapy. The kind of medicine that you need is dictated by the severity of your condition. And if you see your sinfulness as a headache more than as a lethal cancer, you'll see little growth in your life. We need to understand the true nature of sin. Not just the things we do, the way that we love, the things that drive us. But getting the story straight on sin means also coming to grips with its misery, the misery of sin. There's two things to say here about sin. Number one, sin is miserable because it deceives. And number two, sin's miserable because it destroys. You may not have noticed it when we read through that passage in Romans, but one of the insights of Paul's description there is the way it portrays the descent into sin. Verse 20 says, Ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things He has made. So they, human beings, are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honour Him as God or give thanks to Him, and they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being, or birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles. It's hardly a flattering description, right? It doesn't sound good, but this is the stiff diagnosis we need. Paul says that because we suppress the truth about God, because we rejected His truth that He's revealed in creation, we became foolish, not wise. So that instead of seeing it in creation, instead of seeing that everything points to Him and leads us to worship Him, it becomes but a faint echo that's easy to ignore and difficult to perceive. And, and then he says, verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves. See, sin is a whole body phenomenon, mind, heart, 
body. And God hands people over, Paul says, to a judgment that fits the crime. He gives them up in the lusts of their hearts. That word lusts translates a a word that just means something like over-desires. The desires that control us rather than us controlling them. And God's judgment on sin is to let us be consumed by the very desires that led us away from loving God and serving Him. To the point where sin doesn't even seem wrong, but natural and good. It deceives us. And we're self-deceived by it. To return to a medical analogy, just another time, it's like we've got a disease, but one of the symptoms of it is that we feel perfectly healthy. That's why the Bible often talks about sin as spiritual blindness. We don't know we've got a problem. And to the extent that we do know that we've got a problem, the chances are that we still minimize it or sanitize it so that it doesn't seem so lethal. As soon as our sins brought up, our inner lawyer crops up to defend us. We compare ourselves to others, and there's always someone worse than us. We psychologize our sin and put it down to the way we were raised or the experiences we've had. And for sure, there's truth in that. Nurture does have an impact on the specific shape of our sin, but it doesn't fully account for it. We're sinners by nature and not just by nurture. Add to this the reality that sin doesn't just self-deceive, it, it makes, uh, it's also got a tendency, tendency to destroy. Back in that chapter in Genesis, we're sort of flicking back and forth a little bit, when Cain is angered by Abel's offering... God says to him, if you don't do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. The way that sin's described in that that little verse there is that it's like a prowling predator, waiting to devour and destroy. And in Cain's case, that's exactly what it does. He rises up against his brother, we're told, and he kills him. John Owen, another old Puritan, you get more Puritans this morning than probably you have in the last six months, who wrote one of the most influential books about sin, he said that sin always aims at the utmost. He says it's modest, as it were, in its first motions and proposals. It starts small, it starts with something that seems insignificant and trivial, like it doesn't really matter. But having once got its footing in the heart by them, it constantly makes good its ground and presses on to some farther degrees in the same kind. You see what he's saying? Sin is never satisfied. Which is why he most famously says in this same book, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There's no other option. It wants nothing short of our destruction, nothing less than for us to give ourselves wholly to selfish and sinful desires. And while some of us might say, well, I've never murdered someone, and that's a very good thing, 
Most of us know the slippery slope of our desires. That left to themselves, sinful desires always want more. And the devastating consequence of sin is seen there at the end of those verses, chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Sin drives us out of God's presence. It starves us of the spiritual oxygen we need more than the air in our lungs. Without God, there is no life, no light, no peace. Sinfulness is a miserable state. And it's only our spiritual blindness that keeps us from being able to see it. And so if this is the reality, if this is the case, if this is the spiritual condition that we find ourselves in apart from God, then how might we begin to respond to it? Well, whether you're a follower of Jesus, call yourself a Christian, or you're just starting to see the problem of sin in your own life, the way to respond to sin is through repentance. The last two weeks, we've had record-breaking rain in Sydney, and if you drove around at the peak of it, even just here in the inner west, you will have seen roads flooded as the drains failed. Roads need stormwater drains, otherwise you can't drive on them, and repentance is like the drainage systems on the highways of spiritual growth. It's the way we get beyond the dirt and the rubbish and the stagnant floodwater in our lives. And if they're not working, if repentance isn't working, then our growth stagnates and our spiritual lives muddy. And part of what we are wanting to see in this series is that conversion to Jesus, that's not just something that happens at the beginning of your Christian life. Not just something that happens when you become a Christian. It's a lifelong process. It's not just for the hour I first believed, as we sing in the hymn, but each time we catch ourselves drifting from the proper alignment of our lives and our loves. Conversion is a continuous experience of coming back to the grace of God and realising just how deep the problem goes. We're going to get to the heart of repentance in the coming two weeks, including what it looks like practically to repent, but part of getting there is to be honest with ourselves, to let our sin lead us down the path of self-despair, not total despair, because there is hope, hope in Jesus and the gospel, but self-despair, because we come to the end of ourselves and realise that we are not able to rescue ourselves from the problem. One writer I read this week put it this way, he said, if you plunge yourself only a little into self-despair, you will rise only a little into joyous faith in Christ. The more that you see how deep and wide and significant sin is, the more beautiful the grace and rescue of God seems and is To be a follower of Jesus is not to hate yourself, 
The purpose of going down is not to stay there, but it is because in true gospel fashion, the way up is down. The way to find yourself is to lose yourself. The way to gain one's life is to try up, trying to give up trying to establish it on your own. And perhaps most surprisingly, the way that we do this most effectively is not by navel-gazing. It's not by sitting and reflecting, although we do need to do that. The problem with self-reflection is that it only takes us so far. What we need more than that is a vision of the beauty and the splendor of God. Because the darkness within ourselves comes into sharper focus when it's seen next to the bright whiteness of God. It's Peter's experience, if you remember, the disciple of Jesus, when Jesus, early in his ministry, went to call Peter to come and follow him, and Peter's been fishing, and hasn't caught anything, and Jesus says to throw his net on the other side, and he hauls in this catch of fish that nearly breaks the nets. And Peter, having brought in these fish and seen what Jesus had done, he doesn't pat Jesus on the back and say, hey, everyone, three cheers for Jesus, the miracle worker. No, he falls on his face. And he says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful person. The more we see the beauty, the power, the majesty of God, of Jesus, the more it shows us just how deep our sin is and just how big the rescue is that we need. So we need to go deeper, more of God, not less. And what we need especially is more of the beauty of the Saviour who willingly descends into the misery of sin to save us. That's our Saviour, Jesus. It's in Him that we can honestly face up to our sin without it overwhelming us. It's in His grace that we become aware of the extent of our sin. And He's the one who we praise, as the one who rescues us from sin and sets us on a path of repentance as we grow to be more and more like Him. Let's pray. Father, we, maybe some of us, thinking about our own lives, feel quite deeply how sinful we are. And some of us perhaps feel a little bit defensive, like maybe there's not such a problem after all. And some of us feel like we're just not sure what to do next. We know that if desire is the problem, if our loves, that we love things other than you more than we should, and we don't love you enough, if that's the problem, we're not sure exactly how to change that. And so we need your power. We need you to break into our lives more and more and show us the beauty and goodness of Jesus to show us the depths of our sin, not so that we'll stay there, but so we'll descend in order to go up again in your grace. And so help us to do that, give us the courage to do that, give us the willingness to do so, by your power that works within us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.